Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Anna Fifield is former Washington Post Beijing Bureau Chief and 2018 winner of the Stanford University's Shorenstein Journalism Award for Outstanding Reporting on Asia. She returned home in 2020 to become the editor of Wellington's Dominion Post and reflects on her years reporting across eight Asian countries, her insights into North Korea's leader in her critically acclaimed book, The Great Successor, The Secret Rise and Rule of Kim Jong-un, and her take on where the continent is headed over the next decade. She's in conversation with Simon Wilson in a session supported by the Asia New Zealand Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. Ina mana, ina reo, ina iwi, tēnā koutou te whare. I'm Simon Wilson, a humble journalist at the New Zealand Herald. Welcome to From a Distance, a conversation with a mighty journalist and author, Anna Fifield. Thank you. Thank you. Just a reminder, your phone's on silent, please, and if you forgot to scan in, it's not too late on your way out. Do feel free to tweet or anything else about this session without irritating your neighbours. A big thank you to the Asia New Zealand Foundation for their support of the festival as a silver sponsor and especially for sponsoring this session. We'll talk, Anna will read, and there will be time for questions. Anna Fifield has a BA in English Literature from Victoria University, which, as it happens, so do I. <laughs> but that's where it ends. She has studied postgrad journalism from Canterbury, been a fellow of the Neiman Foundation at Harvard. She spent 13 years at the Financial Times in London, was their Middle East correspondent in Beirut and Tehran, the career correspondent in Seoul, and spent four years as their US political correspondent in Washington, DC. In 2014, she became the Tokyo bureau chief for the Washington Post, and later became its Beijing bureau chief. Anna has reported on the, nuclear, the first nuclear test by North Korea in 2006, the disputed Iranian presidential election of 2009, and the 2012 US presidential election. With the Neiman Fellowship, she studied how change happens in closed societies. She later won the Schoenstein Journalism Award from Stanford University for excellence on reporting in Asia. Anna was the first person ever to go live on Facebook from North Korea. That was in 2016. And the last. And the last. <laughs> they turned it off after I'd done it. <laughs> you know, I hope this festival doesn't finish after <laughs> Her book, The Great Successor, The Perfectly Divine Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un, was published in 2019 and has since been translated into, or it now exists in 24 different editions. I am in awe. She and I were going to talk about the book here a year ago, but COVID got in the way. Since then, Anna has returned to New Zealand to take up the role of editor of the Dominion Post in Wellington. In the modern way of things in media, she is also the editor of Stuff's Wellington Newsroom. We'll talk about her job and New Zealand media later on in a part of the hour we're calling Thank God for Harvey Norman. <laughs> Love, him. Love him. But we're going to start with Korea. 
and with a reading. Anna. Thank you, Simon, and kia ora koutou katoa. It's great to be here. And I thought I'd start off with reading a little bit from my favourite chapter in the book, which is about when Dennis Rodman made his first trip to North Korea. And this is after the basketball game when they, Dennis Rodman and his entourage were invited to dinner with Kim Jong-un. Everyone was smiling broadly as they sat down at the tables, which were decorated with elaborate vegetable sculptures, large flowers carved out of pumpkins, birds crafted from some kind of white vegetable perched upon whole watermelons. Dinner stretched to ten courses, including caviar and sushi. There was wine from France and tiger beer from Singapore. Kim started the evening's proceedings with a toast, clinking small glasses of soju with Rodman, that's like Korean vodka. Then Rodman delivered a long and rambling toast in return, which concluded, Marshall, your father and your grandfather did some fucked up shit, but you, you're trying to make a change, and I love you for that. <laughs> Everyone held their breath. <laughs> then Kim Jong-un raised his glass and smiled. Phew. There was round upon round of toasts. One of the Americans there, feeling emboldened by the soju, invited Kim Jong-un to make the return journey to New York. He then raised his glass, a tumbler of Johnny Walker Black that the waiters had been filling throughout the night as if it were wine, and took a sip. All of a sudden, the young dictator was yelling and gesturing at him. For a second, the American wondered if he'd committed a grave error. Then the translator kicked in with a bottoms up. It was a command performance, he told me. The evil dictator was demanding that I chug my drink, so I chugged my drink. A curtain went up, and on the stage was the Moranbong band, sometimes called the North Korean Spice Girls. The women were wearing white jackets and skirts that were scandalously short by North Korean standards, hitting above the knee. They broke into the theme from Rocky, Dun, dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun, that one. The soju was working. Kim's face grew progressively ruddier and his smile grew broader, revealing the discolored teeth of a heavy smoker. Everyone was, in the word of the Americans, wasted. The night ended with Kim Jong-un and Dennis Rodman hugging, the leader patting the basketballer on the back and a big smile on his face. And this... <laughs> This is a man with orange hair and all the rest, really, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Why was he there? You know, it's kind of socially limiting being a socialist or totalitarian dictator. You know, <laughs> Kim Jong-un doesn't have many friends. Um, he is crazy about the Chicago Bulls. That was his basketball team. And I think that, uh, you know, at the time when he came in and so little was known about him, there was an idea that a Chicago Bull could be an emissary between the US and, uh, and North Korea. And it seems like a crazy idea, but actually the CIA seriously discussed it in 2011 when uh, Kim Jong-un was becoming the successor because so little was known about this man. Like, the South Koreans didn't even know how to spell his name. There are two different ways in Korean as for how it could be spelled, so they knew nothing about him. He went to school in Switzerland, you know, and the reason they chose Switzerland was because it's famously discreet, but so much so that the Swiss intelligence uh, authorities, they knew who he was, they knew he was the son of Kim Jong-il, they didn't surveil him or anything because they thought, you know, children should be children. 
So uh, when he came in, the CIA thought about sending uh, Michael Jordan, was their first choice. Uh, for some reason, Michael Jordan didn't want to go. Uh, and then the idea resurfaced with this Vice News uh, media crew uh, who decided that they would send him. At the time, Rodman was, I think, opening a dental convention in Las Vegas. Uh, so he was prepared to do pretty much anything for money. Uh, and off he went. Um, but, you know, it was a kind of a genius move in some ways because that's somebody unthreatening to Kim Jong-un. I think we can be pretty sure that Rodman wasn't pressing him to give up his nuclear weapons. Uh, and it also, I mean, we did actually learn some things about Kim Jong-un from that trip because Rodman was able to tell us about these palaces he lived in. It's because of Rodman that we know he has a daughter called Jue because Rodman held her. So, you know, that started happening. But weirdly, you know, a few years later, Rodman continued to make these trips, Rodman was the link between Kim Jong-un and, and uh, Donald Trump right. because Rodman was on The Celebrity Apprentice when Trump was the host. So talk about truth being stranger than fiction and this weird environment. Yeah. And the, the North Korea that Rodman saw wasn't the North Korea that most North Koreans know, was it? No. I mean, really not. Really not. North Koreans are not having uh, caviar and Johnny Walker Black by any chance. So, yeah, he went in there. He um, organised a few basketball games. One was a kind of show game with the Harlem Globetrotters when they were hanging from the hoops and doing all their mm. tricks, which Kim didn't like. He wanted a serious game. He actually is quite a serious basketball nerd. Um, and so he went... Dennis Rodman went back with a different entourage, they did play these games, but then they went partying. They they had this dinner that I just told you about, but uh, Dennis Rodman went to the kind of Martha's Vineyard of North Korea, where, or the French Riviera of North Korea, where Kim Jong-un has this palace. and One of his palaces. One of his palaces, and said that, you know, it was a cross between a seven-star hotel and Disneyland. So the kind of excesses that he was able to tell us about, um, you know, yes, they're funny stories, but they also really reinforce that despite decades of sanctions, uh, Kim Jong-un is able to get every single thing he wants to be able to live this extremely lavish lifestyle while the people of North Korea, uh, if not starving, are severely malnourished. And have a radio in every room or every house. And Can you tell us a little more about how the yeah. ordinary people of North Korea live? Yeah, so there is um, a lot of difference now between how people live in North Korea and even like 20 years ago, everybody was kind of equally poor. But under Kim Jong-un, he has created this system where um, he is really coddling the, uh, the elites, the generals, the government kind of regime uh, bureaucrats there because he knows that his... Uh, claim to legitimacy is very tenuous. You know, he is a third generation leader. There is no propagandistic myth that they have all grown up with around him, even though they've tried to institute one belatedly. Um, so he knows that to stay in power and to be able to claim that he is the right person to lead North Korea, he has um, allowed a little bit of economic opening, only very slight, for, so the ordinary person can now sell, make noodles at home or tofu at home and sell it in a marketplace. There is a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit that has been unleashed, but for the elites uh, who keep him in power, the people in Pyongyang, 
There is this whole kleptocratic class that exists there now. There's a lot of corruption. There are, you know, fat cats uh, in Pyongyang who have a vested interest in this regime continuing uh, because they are doing well out of it in a way that they wouldn't if they defected to South Korea or anywhere else. One of the observations you make in the book that a mark of having joined the middle class what passes for the middle class, is that you have the money to bribe your children's teacher so that your child will sit in the mm -hmm. front of the class, get a better deal. Yeah. Which is a shocking thing, really, isn't it? I mean, and, and pretty insightful about how, how the economy and society operates. Yeah, it is. I mean, because a lot of people in this kind of totalitarian system, you know, they all have state jobs where they are supposed to go to work in a factory, even though the factory has no electricity and no raw goods to make whatever widget or shoes or whatever they're making, uh, they still have to go there. But so teachers, yeah, and doctors, they go to work, but they don't get paid or they get paid extremely little. So yeah, teachers are very open to being bribed. You have doctors whose main, uh, you know, being a doctor is a side job. Their main occupation is trying to harvest medicinal herbs from the mountains, which they then sell over into China. So kind of, the, that is the biggest change in the past 20 years in North Korea, that there really is this private economy that has been emerging. And Kim Jong-un is allowing that because he knows that he has to be able to say, look, your life is improving under my great leadership. It's, they're the ones who are doing all the work. And it's, he's not doing it because he cares about the people. He's doing it because he wants to stay in power and wants to take the credit for their labor. So market forces are where people make their money. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it's smuggling, some of it's more open. It's all all works through bribery, and it's women who make the money. Yeah, that's been the big change, because once women get married, they don't have to report to their state jobs anymore. They're supposed to be homemakers. And the state homemakers. jobs don't pay. <laughs> the state jobs don't pay. Yeah, so it's the women now who really are the, the breadwinners in North Korea. They are the ones who are uh, in the markets, you know, selling things that they've made at home, cutting hair, uh, selling goods that have been brought in legally. Uh, there's a lot of trade from China and they will start off, maybe they start making tofu and then they use the profits to buy secondhand clothes from China and then new clothes from China and then sewing machines and solar panels are really going gangbusters in North Korea because there's no electricity. So everybody wants a solar panel so that they can run their lights and their TV and things like that. So if you've got a job as a truck driver, bringing in solar panels from China, yeah. you're very functional. Yes, and you yeah. will be able to, in between whatever official consignment you're bringing in, you can pack lots of other stuff that you yes. can sell. So this is a really big change because it loosens Kim Jong-un's grip over people at the same time as giving him this claim to life getting better. Right. And at the same time, at the other end of that market economy, such as it is, there are the donju, the masters of money. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, these are the kleptocrats, the masters of money who have been allowed to run kind of what would look like real businesses in many ways. They are people who are running state-owned enterprises or working abroad in China or other places to make money for the regime, and they can make money on the side as well. So all of the construction projects, the car factories that are staffed by North Koreans in China and loggers in Russia and things. This is a big source of income for North Korea before COVID. Um, they are all, all these masses of money are on the take and are making money on the side. You, in one of your visits to Pyongyang, you went into Pyonghattan. Uh, 
to see a little of how they live. Can you tell us? Yeah, so when I, I was covering North Korea for the Financial Times during the Kim Jong-il era, the last days of that, and I just thought the whole system was broken, there was clearly no love for this guy, and I just did not imagine that it would ever be able to continue um, to a third generation. So when I returned for the Washington Post in 2014, the first visit I made under Kim Jong-un's era, um, I was astonished. I mean, it's still a Potemkin village, but the Potemkin village got a, f a facelift, uh, you know, a paint job. Uh, and so now Pyongyang does look a lot better. There are apartment, uh, you know, high rises um, where, you know, anywhere else in the world, the most expensive flats are on the top floor, right, because they have the best views. In North Korea, they're the bottom four floors because there's not enough electricity to power the elevator, so you don't want to have to carry your groceries to a like 20th floor apartment. Um, but they exist. It looks like it's getting better. And Kim Jong-un has done this because now there is so much smuggling of information as well as goods into North Korea that pretty much everybody has seen South Korean soap operas and movies and things, and they know that the South and China are much, much richer. So Kim Jong-un is just trying to give a sense that life is getting better, that the gap is not getting wider between North and South. And he's coddling those people, especially people his age, the millennials, because they are the people who could potentially keep him in power for decades to come. You mentioned before herbal medicines. Mm -hmm. They're not the only drugs available in North Korea, are they? Is everybody on meth? Um, not everybody, um, but I did... But a lot of people. A lot of people, yeah. That um, North Koreans are really good at science, and they have all these old fertilizer factories that are not being used to make fertilizer. So there is actually, or has been, quite a booming drug trade, uh, and especially selling these drugs across into China. This is locally, most of it is just people working on their own, not state-directed. Um, and so, yeah, lots of... I interviewed a drug dealer who was from a border city who said, you know, he was bribing the local police chief with meth to be able to continue doing his work. And it's really... It's kind of a coping mechanism. You know, every time I've been to North Korea, the, the minders and everybody, they're drinking teacup fulls of, teacups full of soju and things. Like This is how they survive in the system. And I think the meth is the same. The drug dealer told me he uh, gave his mother meth for her blood pressure because there's nothing else, you know? Right, and, and it suppresses appetite too. It depresses mm. appetite. I mean, it's a very broken society and this is yeah. their response. Can we have a, another reading? You've got a reading on how people first started hearing about Kim, Kim Jong-un? Yes, I do. Kim Jong-il informed the top officials in the Workers' Party on January the 8th, 2009, Kim Jong-un's 25th birthday, that he had chosen his youngest son as his successor. Then the news was announced down the hierarchy. Apparatchiks like Tae Yong-ho were informed. Tay was at work in the European Division of the Foreign Ministry in Pyongyang when his cell in the Workers' Party was called to a meeting. They were informed that Kim Jong-il had chosen his son to succeed him. No one ever doubted this decision, Tay told me a few years later in Seoul. In North Korea, we are taught from a very young age that the revolution will be continued from generation to generation. The rollout was slow and indirect, disseminated almost subliminally to the populace, 
especially those in the hostile northern regions where life was toughest and loyalty to the regime was the flimsiest. The official narrative described Kim Jong-un as a brilliant comrade, a morning star shining over the whole nation. Among his supposed great feats was that at the age of three, Kim Jong-un could fire a gun and hit a light bulb a hundred yards away. Another version of this story had him hitting a target ten times in ten seconds. By the time he was eight, he could not only drive a truck, but he could also drive it at 120 kilometers an hour. At their compulsory weekly education sessions, people around North Korea were having these messages drilled into them. It was hard for, these pe for people to believe these things, Mr. Kang, the drug dealer, told me. But if you questioned it, you'd be killed. <laughs> Thank you. The um, eight years old when he was driving trucks around at 120 kilometres an hour, that's actually when he was first identified, isn't it, as, as the next leader? He was picked very early. Yeah, I think actually Kim Jong-il had a bob each way and he named all, uh, well, at least two of his sons, the oldest one, Kim Jong-nam, who according to Confucian hierarchy should have been mm. the successor because he also got a little general's uniform about the same age. But Kim Jong-un at his eighth birthday party was uh, introduced, he was named the little general and he was given a real general's uniform and there was a birthday party where real, uh, real generals saluted to him um, and I, I talked to the Japanese sushi chef and his uh, Kim Jong-un's aunt who were both present at that birthday party and they said that it just became impossible from that point on for Kim Jong-un to live anything like a normal life uh, and you know he was not growing up in a very a normal way whatsoever. Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il and Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un mm -hmm. Three very different men. You, you, you know, it's easy to think that each one became the, the successor because it was like the previous, but it wasn't like that at all, was it? No, it wasn't. So Kim Il-sung was the first leader of North Korea. And he, was, he was installed by Stalin, but he wasn't Stalin's first choice. Uh, Stalin's first choice had too many ideas of his own, so he was kicked out and Kim Il-sung was put in. But he... Um, even outdid Stalin and Mao in terms of creating a personality cult around him uh, and really just taking over with the propaganda uh, and, and turning it into a truly one-man totalitarian regime. He was, um, the myth around him was that he was an anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter who had helped liberate Korea from the Japanese. Uh, there was a, like with all propaganda, there was a kernel of truth in that, but it was exaggerated. But also at that time, uh, the Soviet Union was still in power, China was still very communist, and so he had a lot of support. The North Korean economy was bigger than the South Korean economy until 1975, so he could have some kind of claim to be running North Korea, and people did genuinely adore him at that time. But he spent 25 years grooming his son, Kim Jong-il, to take over, uh, which he duly did in 1994. But Kim Jong-il was a very, very different person. He was uh, a real oddball, like introverted. He spoke in public only once in 17 years in power, and it was just a slogan that he uttered. So, uh, you know, he was, he was very 
weird, different person, uh, and things were very tenuous during his time because his father had died, the Soviet Union had collapsed, China was undergoing this dramatic change, um, and then North Korea was struck by this terrible famine, mostly man-made, that led to maybe two or three million people starving to death. So he didn't make any changes because he was just trying to hold on. But Kim Jong-un... Um, it's much more like his grandfather. He is a much more gregarious, charismatic person. So he, like everything that he does is by design. And the reason I wrote this book was to show that he's not some Bond villain cartoon character. He is a very ruthless, cunning person who has a plan for staying in power. So the haircut is his grandfather's haircut. The outfits, everything is channeled. He has a very gravelly voice and walks with a limp, just like his grandfather. By the same token, the white horse that he rides on Mount Pekdu um, is the same kind of thing that his grandfather did. And so North Koreans have told me that the first time they saw him, they were like... <gasps> because he reminded them so much of Kim Il-sung. And he's done that on purpose because he knows his claim to be the leader of North Korea is very tenuous, and this is one way he can make that claim. Um, you mentioned his ruthlessness. Let's talk about Jang Song Fake, the man supposedly torn to death by dogs. Yeah, not torn to death by dogs. Not torn to death um, by dogs. But, yeah, this is Kim Jong-un's uncle. He was married to... Uh, Kim Jong-il's wife, uh, and he was uh, this very mercurial business kind of character in a circle in the regime. He was in charge of relations with China. All the economic stuff went through him. Uh, very powerful. Um, and he. many people thought that he was really serving as a kind of regent to Kim Jong-un. Uh, and Kim Jong-un, again, very, very savvy. Uh, the, all of the people who walked around the hearse at Kim Jong-il's funeral were like Uncle Jang. There was the army chief, the propaganda chief, uh, all of the people who knew how to run the system. And Kim Jong-un took advantage of that. He kept them all in power uh, while he needed them, while he was getting a grip on the regime. And then one by one, they've most of them have just disappeared. Uh, but Jang Song Tech was hauled out of a Politburo meeting, publicly humiliated, uh, and executed in front of a uh, bleachers full of top senior officials. And with this, Kim Jong-un was achieving two things. He was, one, dispatching with somebody who could legitimately rival him for power. Kim Jong uh, Jang Song-tek knew where the money was. He knew all the people. He had his own um, faction in the regime, so he was gotten rid of. But also, that was a very powerful deterrent message that Kim Jong-un was sending to anybody else in the regime who might have designs, because he was saying, you know, nobody is safe. Uh, I am prepared to have my own uncle killed in front of you all in this way. And that was a message that he doubled down on a few years later when he had his half-brother killed in an airport with a chemical weapon. On camera. On camera. Yes. With impunity, and he's, he has paid no price for that whatsoever. Why was the half-brother a threat? Because Kim Jong-un, dictators by their nature are paranoid, right? Every day they jump out of bed thinking, is this my last day? And his older brother, you know, according to the hierarchy, should have been the thing. But his older brother was living in exile. He was doing all sorts of dodgy things with gambling and triads and things. He was based in Macau. 
But he had this kind of, you know, he came from the family line. He could technically lay a claim. So Kim Jong-un, paranoid that he was, had him killed in this public way. Again, a deterrent message saying, um, anywhere, anytime, I can get you, and it will hurt. It was an extremely excruciating way to die. And yet Kim Jong-un's uh, full brother, mm -hmm. two years older than him, mm -hmm. is still alive. Yep, that's the Eric Clapton superfan. Yeah. Uh, Kim Jong-chol, he's still alive. He's living in North Korea. Some of the Rodman entourage went jet skiing with him when they were there. Uh, so he's still there. He plays no role whatsoever in the regime, though. It's his sister who is the power behind the throne. And why does he play no role in the regime? I don't know. Uh, that's one of the things, you know, he was passed over for the leadership. Uh, he appears to have some medical issues. Uh, the Tay, the diplomat that I read about before, was his guide when, um, when the older brother went to London to visit Eric, go to an Eric Clapton concert, I'm not making this up, uh, and said that he was taking a lot of medicine, he clearly wasn't well. So I think that maybe that had ruled him out of he contention. He used to follow Eric Clapton around, didn't he? He went to several Yeah, he, that's with the spot. The yeah. <laughs> Japanese journalists go to every Eric Clapton concert just to see if they can spot the brother. And, right. and sometimes they do, yeah. You know, given the scope of North Korea, there are worse ways to spend money, I guess. But oh, <laughs> Eric Clapton, old no. hand, I don't know, not my cup of tea. <laughs> not your thing, okay. <laughs> Can we talk about the prison camps? Yes. You, you say you've looked high and low to find people who can tell you what really happens, mm -hmm. and... The implication is that no one gets out alive because you haven't found anyone. Yeah, so there are, um, North Korea operates this system uh, and the reason I think that it hasn't collapsed or changed as Mr. Kang, the drug dealer said, you know, you can't talk, you know, if you question the system, you're killed or maybe put in a political prison camp because North Korea practices this system called guilt by association where you, if you are uh, accused of a political crime, it's not just you who gets thrown in the gulag, it is three generations of your family. So if you, for example, question why the regime is spending all these millions of dollars on nuclear weapons when people don't have enough to eat. It's your parents, your spouse, your children all going to work, you know, to do hard labour potentially for the rest of your life uh, up in the mountains in the north of North Korea. And this system, Kim Jong-un has absolutely kept the system intact. He's consolidated some camps. We can see that from satellite imagery, but they are still there. Um, and so over the years, I have talked to many people who have been through these camps, um, maybe at the lower end of the yeah. scale. They've, they've escaped and they've gone to North, uh, to come to South Korea. But I was never able to find anybody who had been in a camp during the Kim Jong-un era. Because to write this book, I went and found a lot of former North Koreans who had lived under the Kim Jong-un time. Yeah, I couldn't find anybody. And it may be that they have not been released from the prison. It may be that they have not made it out to China. Um, but, but people who are experts on these prisons and um, who follow it also have no information on, on what's happening except to know that they're still there. It strikes me that one of the uh, ongoing difficulties for any leader of a country like North Korea is that they know they, they've got to allow enough change for the people to remain happy, or happy-ish, or aspirational mm -hmm. in some way. Um, and 
one of the things I mentioned, uh, you talked about um, Jang Song Fake before. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was said about him, I think it might be the favourite phrase of mine in the whole book, he was accused of dreaming different dreams while in the same bed. Yep. Um, in other words, he had ideas about how the economy might work mm -hmm. that were a little bit different maybe not very much different, but a little bit different mm. from the way in which it did work. Can you explain that? Yes. Zhang Songtek was very much a proponent of Chinese-style reform and opening, and he did want the North Korean economy to metamorphosize in that same way that China had. Uh, and so he was promoting that. He was also very close to the older brother who was killed in Malaysia. Um, and so the two of them were advocating for this, um, and that was a different dream, I guess, because... China has opened a lot economically. It hasn't changed politically. In fact, in recent years, it's been sliding backwards politically. Um, but I think that that kind of model cannot work in North Korea because in China, not every leader has been called Mao. You know, there is at least a system and some kind of sense of cont contest in there. Um, and in North Korea, I think Kim Jong-un would find it extremely difficult to justify being the best person for the job if it was an open competition. Is that the context in which his relationship with Donald Trump developed, that, that Kim Jong-un was looking for ways in which he might be able to re-establish the country in the eyes of the world? Is that a misreading? Or? No, it's partly true. Like Kim Jong-un uh, wanted to be seen as a responsible nuclear-armed leader uh, and an international statesman who could stand literally shoulder to shoulder with the other responsible nuclear-armed leaders in the world. So that's why we saw him with Trump, with Putin, with Xi Jinping, uh, going around and collecting photos for his you know, legitimacy photo album. Um, I think that's what he was doing. But with, with, you know, North Korea was founded in opposition to the United States and to democracy. You know, the South was allied with the US, the North was allied with the communist bloc. So they are still technically at war today. The Korean War never ended. It was just an armistice. So uh, a lot of what we see happening is a result of that endless war. So Kim Jong-un, all the North Korean leaders actually have wanted to do a deal with the United States that would enable them to normalize a bit. But the, two, the first two Kims were not able to achieve that. It was Kim Jong-un who was you know, the lucky one to draw an un unconventional American president who was willing to do it. So um, that's what kind of paved the way for this meeting. I think it was extremely risky from Kim Jong-un's perspective, but he is quite an audacious leader compared to the previous ones. And I think he does have a vision. He knows he can't just keep things the same and hope to remain in power. Like, he's 37 years old now. He could be there for 50 years. Yeah. So I think... He wanted to do a deal with Trump. He knew that that was an opportunity. But also even going to Singapore was very, very telling for that first summit because Singapore is a country that has uh, reformed its economy or has, has become an economic powerhouse without very many natural resources and things. But, I mean, obviously it's not North Korea. But there is, you know, a level of political control. And also it's an Asian country. It is uh, relatable for a North Korean. And for the rest of the world, the fact that North Korea is a nuclear power strikes me as being perhaps, in global terms, the most significant thing about that country. You tell a, you tell a story of uh, when the Robin 
uh, deal was being set up and HBO got involved mm. and they asked the North Koreans uh, if they had heard of Game of Thrones and they blank faces. You know, so they gave them box sets to take away. Yeah. North Koreans watching Game of Thrones with, night, with the White Walkers and the, the Night King and dragons mm. as nuclear weapons must have must have been astonished at that. <laughs> you know, the parallels are uh, yeah. in, in fantasy terms so close, but North Korea in so many ways is a fantasy country, isn't it? It's, mm. it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, exist in many normal ways at all. No, it doesn't. And everybody knows that now. I mean, the elites know that, uh, that, that, is, that North Korea is corrupt and anachronistic and backwards and things, but they have the vested interests. So they may be aware that they're playing a part in the great Game of Thrones, but they've, they've bought into it. And why does China help North mm -hmm. Korea as much as it does? Yeah, so China, I mean, their number one priority is stability in North Korea. They do not want North Korea to collapse. They do not want the unification of Korea uh, and the potential for democratic American-backed South Korea to come right up to their border. Um, they, you know, for all the problems, and they really do not like Kim Jong-un whatsoever, they still prefer having him there rather than having him gone or having a catastrophic event which may see some rogue scientist with a a suitcase of fissile material escaping across the border. So they really want to keep North Korea as a buffer state um, and as kind of a way to needle the US when they want to as well. So that's why they have propped up North Korea just enough to enable them to stay in power. Just before we move off North Korea, uh, I wonder if you could do one more reading for us. This is a, a, a piece about Kim Jong-un's childhood in Switzerland. Yeah. Great. Kim Jong-un was still very much a child when he departed for Bern, the capital of Switzerland, in the summer of 1996. The 12-year-old had a pudding bowl haircut and the start of what would one day become a very pronounced double chin. Bern was famous for its clock tower, which had led a young patent clerk called Albert Einstein to discover the theory of relativity some 90 years earlier. Kim Jong-un went on his own enlightening journey, traveling from famine-struck North Korea to one of the richest countries in Europe. He joined his older brother, who had been living in a decidedly suburban neighborhood on the outskirts of Bern for two years with their maternal aunt and her husband. We lived in a normal home and acted like a normal family. I acted like their mother, Kim's aunt told me almost 20 years later when I tracked her down in the United States. Their friends would come over and I'd make them snacks. It was a very normal childhood with birthday parties and gifts and Swiss kids coming to play. The family enjoyed living in Europe and having money. Their photo albums contain pictures of the future leader of North Korea swimming in the Mediterranean on the French Riviera, dining al fresco in Italy, going to Euro Disney in Paris, and skiing in the Swiss Alps. The apartment on Kerkstrasse was more modest than what he was used to back home, but Kim Jong-un could live a relatively normal existence there, and he could devote himself to his favorite pastime, basketball. It was his mother who first sparked his interest in the sport. There's an old tale that Korean mothers, North and South, like to tell their children. If you play basketball, you'll grow taller. 
Kim Jong-un was short as a child, and his father was not a tall man. He was only five foot three and famously wore platform shoes to try and compensate. Kim Jong-un grew to five foot seven, so maybe there was some truth in the old myth. Thank you. And then the pretend parents defected and he got a new set of pretend parents. Yep, that's I, right. Anna, you've flown far and flown very high, and I wonder if you know what your secret is. <laughs> um, that's very kind of you to say, Simon. Uh, I don't have a secret. I think I've just worked hard and been lucky. I um, am always looking for the next opportunity and kind of making my own opportunities, and that when I arrived as a 24-year-old at the FT in London, I knew that was an opportunity, and I, um, I was doing a very lowly job on the website, just putting stories online, but I just started volunteering for weekend, uh, like bank holiday shifts, right. so that I could start writing when nobody else wanted to be, and you know, I was working the Easter when the Queen Mother died, and got to go and write that story, and just one thing led to another, um, but I, I think that there is some kind of... Kiwi directness, frankness component there. I really remember very clearly uh, when I was at the Financial Times in the first couple of years and somebody took me aside once and said, you know, it's not the done thing to show ambition around here. <laughs> <laughs> His name was like Crispin and he was wearing a pink shirt and so I just ignored him and carried and, on. And he's still, who knows what who happened knows? to him. <laughs> Yeah, yep. right. And now you're back and editor of the Dom Post. How's yeah. that? You know, it's great. Um, I mean, at the beginning of last year, I wasn't even thinking about coming home. And a number of factors kind of led me, all the stars aligned and told me it was time to come home. And so, you know, I... Including COVID, presumably. Yeah, it was <laughs> a factor, but it wasn't the factor. And that I, you know, I loved working at the Washington Post. What an amazing organisation to be at and to have the momentum and the money of the world's richest man. Uh, you know, it, w it was amazing. But I... Uh, I have loved being a foreign correspondent because I was out in the world and travelling around and writing for people who may never go to that country. And the, you know, the thrill was, yeah, getting paid to go places and ask questions and having all these weird experiences and reporting back. But all of a sudden, last year, I think because of COVID and the soul searching that. Uh, that brought upon lots of us, I started craving closeness uh, and wanting to be accountable to my audience, writing for people that I cared about and that I was, you know, I wanted to be accosted in the queue at the supermarket about my story or whatever. Um, but happening at the same time, uh, 16 of my colleagues were expelled from China in March last year because of the trade war, the Trump war between China and North Korea and things just, you know, China has changed a lot in the last couple of years and things have just become impossible. So if all these people were expelled, uh, you know, a few months later, the two Australian journalists in China had to seek refuge in their embassy and they stayed there for five days before they were evacuated. Uh, becoming a foreign, being a foreign journalist in China now is extremely difficult and the level of surveillance and obstruction is, I just, I wasn't doing the kind of work that I went there to do. I wasn't, increasingly it was like North Korea. I was afraid to talk to normal Chinese people for fear of getting them in trouble. So there was that. I thought either I would be kicked out or have to leave sooner rather than later. And I'd always thought I'd go back to 
Washington, but um, looking at what's happened in Washington, and I'm not just talking about Trump, I'm talking about the whole political polarization and things there, I thought, you know, I don't want to raise my child as an American, it was just time to bring him home and raise him as a Kiwi with Kiwi values. And then at the same time, my stuff was bought by a New Zealand journalist and I was offered this great job and it was just like the universe is telling me it's time. So that, uh, that at stuff, the management buyout by um, Siobhan. Um, Sinead. Uh, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Yes, Sinead. <laughs> uh, Sinead Boucher, who, that's one of the things that are, in w one of the ways in which stuff is, I guess you could say, at the forefront of, the attempt that all media is doing here to try and reinvent who we are and how we remain commercially viable. Stuff's also, it's got a Me Too uh, project, which is significant. It's mm -hmm. got a, a Forever project, a climate change team, mm -hmm. an investigations unit. It's rethought its attitudes to Māori and its relationship to colonialism and race in New Zealand. Do those sorts of things kind of fill a lot of your time in the sense of the, that reinvention of how you do media, how you do newspapers and websites? Yeah. yeah, I mean, they do. I think, you know, I came home because I wanted to be part of the reinvention of stuff and the success of, of stuff. You know, I passionately believe that journalism plays a really crucial role in our democracy and in society and I also believe that people will pay for good journalism like I do think I mean maybe that person's called Harvey Norman but across the board a lot people will pay I think there is a role and I think last year showed us that good serious journalism can literally be a matter of life and death you know we've seen what's happened in the United States when biased media outlets have reported, you know, no need to wear a mask, this thing will go away. Uh, and climate change is a life and death matter as well, although over a, a slower burn. Um, so I think, yeah, that I am fired up about this and I want to be part of this. And everything that's happened at Stuff since Sinead bought the company has really reinforced that in my decision to come home. And we those projects you talked about, but also we have we now have an explainer editor whose job is to write these long-form pieces. And he wrote 2,000 words on the war in Yemen. Uh, and I ran it in full on my paper and got lots of good feedback. I think there's a real hunger for good journalism, quality journalism. It doesn't always have to be about Kim and Kanye getting divorced and things, though, though we but will run that too. <laughs> yeah. It must be it, it must be tempting with an explainer editor to test his limits. <laughs> no, he, I mean, he I, as far as I can tell, he has no limits. He's done really great work on you know he does like lots of research. He's not pumping one of these out every day, but yeah, he did a great piece about fault lines the other day, and and we've also hired a, a New Zealand journalist who was working for the Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong, and she has come back to write about New Zealand's relationship with China. So I think there is a lot of positive momentum uh, in the country and the company. Sorry. Um, and I will just use this opportunity um, to say, you know, I've come back because I believe in it, and I think I think it can be done. So, if you also believe in it, I would encourage you to support media. Uh, you know, whether it's donating to stuff, whether it's the spin-off, even the New Zealand Herald. Especially you know, the New Zealand Herald. We're all well served by having a very vibrant media environment with competitive spirit, and we can hold people to account. And, and yeah. it's interesting.
interesting that, isn't it? That the, the, the three outlets you mentioned all have a different way of asking for money, if you like. We have yep. the premium subscription, yep. uh, which is a paywall. Um, you ask for you ask for readers to donate. Yes. Um, the spin-off and newsroom um, have a, a kind of sponsor model. Mm -hmm. um, they're all we're all doing the same thing. We're all we're all saying to our readers. Um, we can't do this for nothing. It's mm. important. We think it's important we do it. Um, and we're all looking for the ways that are viable. And I know it's working for the Herald. Um, mm. I assume it's working for stuff. So, yeah. so there's probably more than one viable option. Yeah, um, I think there is more than one viable option. Yeah. I mean, in this, in a way, COVID and everything that's happened is a chance for us to reimagine what we do and how we do it. So I think we're all yeah. experimenting and finding our ways and we'll find out what works and what doesn't. And Carry on. I wonder if we could have the lights up a little. It is question time. Um, there are some microphones at the front and in the middle and upstairs as well. Um, and uh, if you would like to ask a question of Anna, please um, plonk yourself in front of one of them and um, we'll get that going. And while you're um, doing that, another question for mm. you, Anna. Going back to Korea, what's going to happen? Yes. Um, I think that right now is, the, is an extremely difficult time for Kim Jong-un and that COVID has had a much more powerful impact or the um, deteriorate, what's the word on it, devastating impact on him and his economy than decades of sanctions ever have because North Korea has no health system, they have no electricity, they don't even really have Panadol in the hospitals. So uh, if COVID had have gotten into North Korea, it would have wiped out a big chunk of the society. So they closed their borders even before Wuhan and China closed down and they've remained closed ever since. So there's none of the trade and aid and things that have kept them afloat. So I think that they are really struggling and, and Kim Jong-un is actually warning of a famine looming. So that's a sign I think of how, how tough things are in there for the ordinary people too. Well, question up there, thank you. Speaking of uh, change in a closed society, I've been following the Israel-Palestine uh, mess at the moment and I noticed both in the Dom Post and the, the Herald uh, all of the reports come from AP uh, or the Telegraph Group, uh, mostly. Uh, as someone who worked for AAP in Australia, I know that no one, once uh, uh, back in the 90s, I know that there is no AAP uh, journalist now working uh, even out of Jerusalem, and certainly no one um, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, aside from your explainer uh, journalist, is there some way that we can get a different narrative? Because I'm not impressed with the way that it's been portrayed as uh, only Hamas or people being provocative. Have you got any comment on you know, the, the you. lack of foreign correspondence mm. today? Yeah, I mean, of course I wish we had foreign correspondence. I feel this very keenly, in particular in relation to China, uh, because, you know, China is so important to us economically in New Zealand, and we, sh I mean, we take copy, as you said, we syndicate copy from the Times and the Telegraph and the Washington Post and AP, but in some cases that's fine, but none of this is being written for a New Zealand audience. Um, so recently I was listening to this story about 
Zespri having to pay the Chinese producers who have stolen their kiwifruit technology uh, in Sichuan, and that's the price they pay for continuing to operate in China. And I was like, man, I wish I could send somebody to Sichuan to see what they're doing and to report about this. So, yes, I feel that absence very keenly, and uh, but I but I also know that we're not about to have a foreign correspondent anytime soon. Foreign correspondents are extremely expensive to have. Um, so my challenge, I guess, is how I can be creative and report on, on these kinds of things from with the resources I have. And so getting somebody like uh, Lucy uh, Kramer, who's joined us to write about New Zealand's place in the world, to at least be starting this is a start. But um, I, haven't, I haven't got a great answer right now, except that it is definitely something that I would like to be able to do. Thank you. Up, up there? A report this morning by Donna Miles Mojab on the, the situation there. Great. Thank you. I'm taking you back to um, North Korea. Okay. A few festivals ago, I was interviewing Jung Jin Sun, the so-called poet laureate of North Korea, mm -hmm. on this stage. And one of the things that really struck me was how psychologically damaging the process of le leaving North Korea was. Not only do your family end up in, in a prison, and you know that they will, mm -hmm. uh, then when you get to Seoul, usually, you can't get together and, and drink, uh, have drinking parties with other North Koreans because no one trusts each other. Um, can you talk about the people you talk to, the exiles, and um, just you know the, the damage that's been done to them, and I guess you know whether that what that portends for maybe some eventual rapprochement between the South and the North. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, the North Koreans who escaped from North Korea have, you know, they've suffered a lot of trauma often, uh, either inside North Korea or on the way out, and they arrive in South Korea where they automatically become South Korean citizens. But they, uh, they are given quite a lot of government support at the beginning, but it's extremely difficult for them. You know, if you're an engineer who's never used a computer and doesn't know what the internet is, it's very hard to get a job as an engineer in South Korea. Um, and if you are are used to having the communist state, you know, looking, at, you know, keeping very close tabs on you and, you know, and your business all the time, then to suddenly be locked in, you know, sent to an apartment by yourself is very isolating. So they have a, a really difficult time settling into South Korea. And also there's a lot of kind of uh, discrimination against them because South Koreans, younger South Koreans in particular, do think of them as country bumpkins who, you know, don't know how to order a latte on their smartphone and things like that. So it is, it is really really hard for them there and in a way I think that the South Korean government is missing a trick that they should be trying to prepare for eventual unification by you know preparing with these people using this 30,000 people in South Korea now as a kind of test lab for unification and thinking about how do we put these two societies together yeah thank you yeah. yes over here thank you um I, hi hi <laughs> Uh, reading your um, columns in The Listener over the last few years and then your book, I've often wondered how on earth you get away with it. <laughs> and so the question is, uh, not entirely humorously, why haven't you found Novi Chuck in your undies? <laughs> uh, so to speak. Put a, li put a yeah. little bit more directly. Um, do you <laughs> Even think more you... directly? <laughs> Do you think in some bizarre way that having uh, a red-headed 
Western journalist commenting on North Korea is some way to Kim Jong-un's advantage? Huh, no, I don't think it's to Kim Jong-un's advantage. I know they don't like the book. Um, the North Koreans have stopped answering my WhatsApp messages uh, since it came out. Um, it's it's I think, a shock, isn't it? <laughs> I think, you know, for them, they are happy to ignore it. You know, I am too small fry for them to bother about. I'm not threatening Kim Jong-un and the regime uh, himself. You know, the people that they've gotten rid of are North Koreans in a circle, or the North Koreans have defected to South Korea. There have been a few efforts um, by agents to go and get them to silence them as well. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think they'd ever bother with me. Uh, having said that, I would not go back to North Korea now. Um, because there's good evidence, isn't there, that if you do, yeah. you can end up... Yeah, yeah um, yes, that's right. Uh, I just wouldn't, wouldn't be sure... Um, that nothing would happen. But I, I mean, I did have a, this kind of a dream slash nightmare that I'd been offered the first interview with Kim Jong-un. And of course, I really want that interview. Uh, and I just remember panicking in my sleep thinking, it's a trap, it's a trap, but I've got to get the first interview. Uh, luckily, I woke up and realised that I didn't need to make that decision. But um, yeah. You'd probably get the first interview, but it might be your last. Yes. That's true. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Question over here. Um, kia ora. Um, kia ora. Thanks for sharing your readings and your insights. It was really mm -hmm. fantastic. I've got a question about, I guess, the economic and political rise of China. Mm -hmm. I know in about half a decade, China will officially overtake the US as mm -hmm. the world's biggest economy. And obviously, they're really important really important to New Zealand, economically, politically. Um, but recently, the, I guess, Labour-led government refused to call out what's happening in, in Uyghur Labour camps and to Uyghur people and other minorities in China as atrocities or, or kind mm -hmm. of toned down language of a statement that they made. So what's your sense as a journalist now based in Wellington about how you can sort of, I guess, hold the government, hold politicians to task about um, some of the human rights abuses happening in China and, I guess, maintain that journalistic integrity, independence in the mm -hmm. face of what might be increasing political pressure for New Zealand to be quiet um, yep. about some of the yeah, human rights positions that the Chinese state takes. Mm. Yeah, this is extremely difficult for the New Zealand government, obviously. Like a third of our exports go to China. It's so important to us. And I think for a long time, they were not wanting to talk about this because it was so difficult. And because we've seen what's happened when Australia and the US and uh, the UK have criticised this. There has been retribution, uh, usually through trade tactics against Australia, uh, in particular recently. Uh, so I think New Zealand has been watching that very closely closely and trying to figure out what to do. And until quite recently, it wasn't much at all. Um, and as you say, they had declined to join some Five Eyes statements, which actually, you know, Five Eyes is an intelligence sharing network. There's never been a, a discussion about broadening that out. So I don't really think that that's the right way to be doing it anyway. It should be a, but, but then at the same time, they haven't joined more multilateral statements too. But I think things have started to shift this year, um, and I'd like to think, you know, Staff Circuit made a documentary about the Uyghur situation called Deleted, and we've been trying to do a lot of reporting about this. Um, I went to Xinjiang in September last year before I left China, and have been trying to talk about what I saw there uh, with the prisons that have been set up in, in Xinjiang. Um, so I think 
think that things have started to move. We have seen movement. We have seen ACT challenging the government to condemn what's happening in, uh, in China. And so now there has been a statement that Parliament passed. So things are moving on that. It remains extremely difficult. But I think, you know, China will do what it wants to do regardless, and we as New Zealanders have to stand up for our values uh, and our principles and to, of course, protect trade as much as we can, but we have to say it is not okay for at least a cultural genocide, if not an actual genocide, to be happening in Xinjiang and to be able to look back on this and know that we have stood up for those people. And I think it's really fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah. I think it's really fascinating that Nanaya Mahuta is our foreign minister and the way she talks about her view as an indigenous woman, an indigenous person, and how that is informing her decisions on Xinjiang and the way she talks about it. So I think New Zealand is moving in the right direction there. I think China will, will pay no attention whatsoever. Um, they will do what they're doing, but we will know that we stood up for, for what's right. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you. There's a question up there. Okay. Um, thank you so much. This is actually a follow-up question on China. You, you spoke about uh, the way in which you've been seeing the regime going backwards from its former more transparent or more open policy and the challenges of, for example, uh, free journalism. I'd just be interested to get your thoughts on how you see this playing out in these next phases and also particularly um, the effort that China has made an investment into the areas of artificial intelligence, gene editing, all of the areas that allow them to increase surveillance and have the social credit on their own people. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to work out, actually. I mean, I do know that it's just become tighter and tighter and more restrictive inside China. The facial recognition technology is extremely scary and how they can track people all the time. Um, you know, I was there on June the 4th last year for the anniversary of Tiananmen Square and, you know, there was nobody was going anywhere, I think, because they can they don't need to stop you anymore. They uh, at, the entrance to the square, they can stop you when you leave their, you leave your house, um, the, their ability to keep tabs on things. But I arrived in China really conscious that this was not North Korea, and I couldn't look at everything through a North Korean lens. But increasingly, Xi Jinping, you know, is acting like a one-man party. Uh, he has dispatched with lots of people who criticize him and challenge him. Then there is no independent media in China anymore. You know, human rights activists, journalists, lawyers, a lot of people have been silenced or put under house arrest, if not in jail. So I think he is very much in control at the moment, and he's made himself president for life. And I'm, I don't know what is going to change that, because they do have so much technology at their disposal now in which to be able to keep a, a keep control of the system. So I don't feel, I left China last year feeling pretty pessimistic about what was, could happen there. Thank you. Anna, one of the takeaways for me from your book is that the prospects of change are made really difficult by the way in which power operates. <laughs> that you, you make the point that uh, when dictators are overthrown, it's very rarely because of a popular uprising. It's much more likely to happen inside the inner circle. Um, but it is, seems very clear from your book that in North Korea, uh, you, if you are in the inner circle or anywhere close to it, you must be corrupt. You mm -hmm. must tie yourself to the regime. You're not going to be trusted if you're not corrupt because you're not, yep. you're not playing by the rules. Mm -hmm. 
and that that in itself yeah, makes the whole situation really, really bleak. Yeah, it does. And I mean, now the fact that these corrupt officials can't go to China, can't be trading and things, that's where I think that the difficulty comes in and how does Kim Jong-un keep these fat cats happy when they can't be making their money anymore? So that's why I think things are kind of tenuous or heading towards tenuous at the moment. But, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, look at Kim Jong-un. He's done so many things to try to stay in power, yet he looks like a heart attack waiting to happen. You know, he's not doing the one thing that could ensure his longevity, which is to look after himself. Um, so the biggest risk to him, I think, is that he has a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. But if he did, I don't necessarily think the regime collapses. Like, the generals, the masters of money, I think they come in and they take over. China wants that. They want the stability and that you could end up with a Myanmar-style situation or something rather than the reunification of the two Koreas. Always a great improvement. <laughs> we are out of time. Um, before we leave, just to mention that Anna will, of course, be signing books out the back. No rera, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.